Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. In light of COVID-19, our regularly scheduled 9 and 11 a.m. Sunday services are currently suspended. During this time, we will live stream our 11 a.m. Sunday morning service and plan to offer other online connection points throughout the week. You can find us on Facebook or visit www.rockpoint.org for more information, including important schedule updates. Well, today is, in fact, Mother's Day, and we want to recognize that. Um, And then I want to take you to uh, a passage of Scripture, and we're going to be relatively brief today because I, I know that all of you have a absolutely no place to go whatsoever. Um, This is for our mothers. Uh, We're thoughtful of you. We're aware of you, of all the different trials that you're dealing with in the situations right now. And so um, this little clip is for you guys. Mother's Day looks a lot different this year. (sighs) Mommy needs a quarantine. And our moms may be spending a lot of time with their kids right now. A lot. Like, so, so much time. And even though they love their kids to the moon and back, sometimes moms need a little alone time. You know, to recharge. No matter what's happening in the world, their favorite way to spend time is with their family. In good times, in hard times. Mom! You're breaking everything! In uncertain times. Thank you, Mom, for making time for us every single day. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I ask that you would watch over us as we go to bed and rest, that you'd speak to us in Bible stories and speak to us in our... I don't know that there's been a more stressful, more difficult time to be a mother uh, than now. Nicole Johnson wrote an article entitled, I Am Invisible. I just want to read a portion of it. She says, it all began to make sense. The blank stares, the lack of response, the way one of the kids would walk into the room while I'm on the phone and ask to be taken to the store. And inside I'm thinking, can't you see I'm on the phone? Obviously not. No one can see if I'm on the phone or cooking or sweeping the floor or even standing on my head in the corner because no one can see me at all. I am invisible. Some days I'm only a pair of hands, nothing more. Can you fix this? Can you tie this? Can you open this? 
Some days I'm not a pair of hands. I'm not even a human being. I'm a clock to ask, what time is it? I'm a satellite guide to answer, what number is the Disney Channel? I'm a car to order. Right around 5.30, please. I was certain that these were the hands that once held books and the eyes that studied history and the mind that graduated college, but now they had all disappeared into the peanut butter, never to be seen again. She's going, she's going, she's gone, she writes. A lot of times we can feel invisible, especially during this season of time. And um, this study that I want to take you into over the next several weeks, entitled Songs in the Night, and I'll explain that title a little bit later, um, is going to be a series of the Psalms. And these were meant to be sung originally, uh, but they reveal a lot about the character of God. They tell a lot about ourselves. And today I want to talk to you about Psalm 139. Now I'm aware as we're talking about this today, and as we're even discussing the idea of invisibility, that some of you feel that you are completely invisible uh, to us. Uh, you're where you're at in your home, and I, even though I've said I, I see the, the Frasers over there, or or I, I see, you know, this person or that person, Ajit and Divya and different people, you still feel very secure in your setting. And, and that's good. We want you to feel safe and secure. Um, interesting, I got a new set of glasses uh, during this interim period, and I am surprised to find they have some pretty remarkable um, capabilities to them. You know, even now, for example, I don't just see you absent from the sanctuary. I see you actually in your setting right now where you're at. Uh, Raul Quintanilla in your black t-shirt and, and, and jeans, I guess you're wearing right now. Yeah. And then I see Tim Ryder, who would normally be on our drums. He's got a, a white t-shirt. That seems to be a theme, t-shirts for some reason. Uh, but you have a track uh, gray maybe that you're wearing, it looks like to me. Um, maybe with a Nike logo on a blue hoodie that you're wearing on top of the white t-shirt. It looks like uh, Colin Curry, my friend, who would normally sit over there as I, as I look out and I, I scan him, he's actually dressed up a little bit more. He's actually got a blue button-down shirt on with khaki shorts. Really, Colin, shorts on a Sunday morning. Um, I do like the slick back hair, though. That looks pretty sharp. Now, right now, I've got three households that are freaking out and wondering what I'm doing here. Um, actually, each one of your ladies ratted you guys out earlier this morning. Uh, the glasses are strictly glasses. But what if we were seen no matter where we went to, no matter what we did? Would that be freaky or would that be good? Psalm 139 starts out like this. It says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. This beginning statement is a startling statement to be made. The pagan gods that David would have known were generally indifferent or at best, at best and often hostile to mankind. But David comes along and, and, and there's this God who knows him. This God that cares enough to search him out. And so this passage begins with, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise and you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways. I projected that I could see Raul and, and Colin and Tim. 
But God actually does see each one of them and their, their wives and their families and each one of you wherever you're at. And he saw David and discerned his going out and lying down and familiar with all his ways. He even goes on and says, before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. How would it affect your speech if you were very conscious of the fact that God um, is, is watching and aware of everything you are saying? Would you utter that profanity? Would you pass on that piece of gossip? That thing that would damage or tear, that harsh word? It says before, a word is even on my tongue. You, Lord, know it completely. The next passage says that you hem me in behind and before. And another translation says you hedge me about. And hedges um, are not very familiar for us here in the United States. But in Europe and in England, uh, these hedgerows, as they're called, have grown since the time of the Romans. Um, they've been used for a, a very lengthy period of time. They were basically living fences kept uh, to keep livestock from getting into the crops. And so these hedges would, over time, grow very thick. And especially in France and Europe, there have been embankments of earth and then the hedgerow, and they actually would trim them in such a way that sometimes the branches would interlace and start to grow together. And so they became basically a living fence. Now, when barbed wire came along, these things kind of became passe, and that's why we use what we use here, and we're not really tuned into the hedge stuff. But the hedges were so strong, so powerful in that time, that when World War II happened, they were difficult to fight our way through. They actually had to fit tanks with a hedgerow cover. It was a kind of a projection that would go in front of the tank, and they called the tanks rhino tanks. And they would come in and, and tear into the embankment of earth and tear out the interlacing roots of generations and, and, and branches and everything else and break through those in order to get at the enemy. So what God's saying here with this passage where it's saying you hem me in before and, and behind is what David is saying is that you have a hedge, you have a wall of protection, a living wall that, that, that guards me and provides for me and protects me in a strong fashion. It says, you lay your hand upon me. Now, there's different ways that you can lay hands on somebody. You lay hands on somebody in a violent fashion, or you can have that touch that just ministers grace. This is the hand of grace, not the hand of judgment. And so you protect me, and then you lay your hand. I can feel your hand literally upon me of grace. And he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me too lofty for me to attain. It's just, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing what actually you are doing here and what actually your, your, your intimacy and your care and your concern. He began to realize that God actually knew him better than he knew himself. That God actually knows us better than not just anybody, better than we know ourselves. Sometimes we reject what God says in His Word and in His ways, and we think we know better, and we forget, or perhaps need to remember in these times, He knows us, and He knows what shapes us and what is best for us. There's this level of intimacy that's being talked about. 
it, it goes on and it says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Now this begins to sound a little bit like, uh, um, you know, somebody's watching me uh, or an old police song, Every Breath You Take. And it, it can be a little bit scary. And in our society, we're conscious of the fact that there's cameras all around and that we are seen all the time and recorded. And we get concerned about that and our privacy being violated. Um, but when it's saying, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I feel from your presence? Um, the idea that we're being watched or being observed takes a different connotation depending on who's doing the watching. If I've got a, a stalker or an enemy watching me, yes, I'm very uneasy about that. I'm not even a, a big fan of being watched by crowds of people. But what, what kid generally doesn't want their mother or father to watch them? How many times, parents, have you heard? You know, your kids say, watch me, mommy, watch me, or, or daddy, watch me. See me do this, see me do that. I don't know how many times I'd see my kids when they were small and they're going out and doing something and they're turning around to, to see and there's a sense of security they have in knowing that I'm, I'm still watching them, that I'm still present, still I'm still there. This is what this is talking about here. This is where can I go from you, sir? Where can I flee from your presence? If you go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. It's not saying that you're freaking me out. It's saying that you're present. You're comforting me in the same way this hedge of protection is around me. Your presence watches me as your son as your daughter. You see what I'm doing. It says, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, and if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, and your right hand will hold me fast. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, it's kind of invoking the spread of light from east to west. And what it's evoking here a bit is the idea of the speed with which God's presence is there. There's no way we can escape it. If we try to run away, he is faster. He's as fast as the speed of light. In fact, he's faster than the speed of light, which instantly is 186,300 miles per second. That comes to just under, it's around 670 million miles per hour. And that's light. It's the fastest known thing that we have right now. So there's some theories about a few other items that are out there. But this passage is sitting here and saying, even from where the wings of the dawn take off of the sunrise is going and the light is going from east to west, God is faster than that to be present. He says, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. There's uh, an evo evoking in this passage when it talks about the depths you are there and then even there your hand will guide me is that saying that even when I'm dead, even when I'm buried, that you're still going to be present. There's still no way to avoid you or evade you. If I say surely the darkness will hide me and the light become uh, night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day for darkness is as light to you. And um, the whole idea of just God's presence being in such a way that he sees even in the dark. There's nothing that we do, good or bad. One of the reasons why I, I have entitled this Songs of the Night is based on an experience that I had when I was a kid. When I was younger, my parents had uh, taken us um, out west. We'd gone to Missouri, I think it was. Um, had a trailer and parked in the trailer park, and you met people that way. And it was a different time period before 
a lot of the weirdness that we see today. And so we met some new friends there and, and uh, um, two young boys and my older sister. And I think they were kind of attracted to my older sister. And so they wanted to take her snipe hunting. If any of you know what snipe hunting is, it's where you take someone out into the woods and basically lose them. And so they take us up the mountainside in Missouri. And as we go up this trail, there was a drop off to our left. Well, we make a right and we go on further in. It gets dark. And sure enough, they, they leave us at one point in time, my older sister, myself, and I think my younger sister was there too. Now, we're in the dark in, in the place there, and um, this person had disappeared. They were supposed to, I think, going to come back. But what happened is they actually fell asleep at one point in time while they're watching us 100 feet away or whatever else like that. So they fall asleep in the process of the little prank that they're trying to pull. We know there's a drop-off on the way back, and in the dark, we could stumble over that drop-off. So there's a concern about moving in any way. And so we stay there, and we know at this point in time that we've been left. We know that there's something else going on here. And as we stayed there for what seemed like a long time, and it was a lengthy time, I'm not sure how long, but maybe an hour or two or three, um, my sister, older sister who's a singer, would uh, sing songs to us. And she would voice different characters. And she amused my younger sister and I during that process. And the fear didn't enter into what was happening as she would begin to sing these songs out. And she did it for two reasons. One was to amuse us, I think, and distract us. Another thing was to hopefully draw attention from those looking for us. And we did this while waiting for my father to find us. We knew that he would. And at one point in time, sure enough, he comes up the mountain with a flashlight. They come searching for us and they find us. And we were safe through that. But the idea of songs in the night, songs that we sing when we're in a place of darkness or isolation, while we're waiting for God to do something, or while we're waiting for a situation to resolve in some way or another. To me, songs of the night typify many of the psalms we're going to talk about. But this passage is sitting here and saying that, that even the darkness is made light, that there's nothing, at no time are we uh, not seen by God. He sees us even through those dark moments on a mountainside, in a valley, wherever it would be at. Goes on and says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place inside the womb. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, and he links the depths of the earth to a womb, a place that is dark and unseen and, and maybe moist somewhat, he points that to the womb and there I saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And so God shapes us and makes us. And this, if you are a proponent of abortion, you have a problem because in this passage, it makes it clear that, that God shapes us and knows us even within the womb, that before we're born, at the moment of conception, there's something of an awareness, there's something of a, of a reality of a human being. That's not the purpose of this conversation today, but, but it's clear that, that, that everyone has a destiny. Everyone has a purpose. Before um, one of them came to be, my days were ordained. That all of us, wherever we're at, have a purpose. That we have a destiny. It doesn't matter how damaged or, or how much sin or the twistedness of this world has, has, has um, shaped or twisted God's creation, God can still use something even out of the twistedness of sin. I don't know if you've ever noticed a golf ball. I'm not a golfer. Uh, 
to me, it, I, I, I hit that, and if I hit it just right, it flies, and I'm, I'm a real proponent of golf because I can do a, whatever, 100-yard kick. It's, it's fantastic. But then it comes to all the rest of it, and it drives me crazy. It is just the most useless sport, in my opinion. But if you've noticed a golf ball, even if you're not a golfer, you would have noticed that they're not round, and they're round rather, but they're not flat and, and perfect. All of them have little dimples on them. Why the little dimples? Why the imperfections? Well, the imperfections, if you talk to an aeronautical engineer uh, who makes these golf balls, they'll tell you that a smooth golf ball, will actually, it only goes like about 130 yards off the tee. But one that has dimples will go twice as far that the imperfections actually minimize the flaws, if you will, minimize the airflow around the ball and actually goes farther than it would have without them. Whatever imperfections were made in your body, whatever things that, that, that God originally designed for perfection have been made imperfect through this world, through whatever circumstance and situation, is it possible that God could still use those imperfections those items still to, to bring glory to his name and to bring something of a reality and purpose to you. If we could accept our bodily imperfections, maybe uh, the dimples that we dislike so much could ultimately be something that could bring us a level of satisfaction and understanding of our uniqueness. David realizes in God seeing him that he made him in detail. The knowledge of God is so intimate of what David's speaking here. He goes on in verse 17 and he says, how precious or, or well, let's just say, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. How precious, the term precious there has to do with a weightiness. It has to do with a sense of, of God taking um, God's, David taking God's thoughts and, and his concern about David and, and all of it there. And when he puts it on the scale, it just plum, drops the scale down. It's so heavy that it changes everything for him. How precious, how weighty are your thoughts? How vast how often do you think of me? How often am I on your mind? How often do you care for me? Why well, to count them? He says they'd outnumber the grains of sand. Think of that. God's thoughts about you. God's interest in you. They are so numbered that they go beyond the grains of sand. That's how often your God thinks just about you. And so he says, when I'm awake and you're still here, he says, I have total amazement. I, I just don't understand why you would even care. There's another passage where David Rice says, what is man that you're thoughtful of him? Why do you even care? Now, after this passage, the scripture takes a really weird twist. Okay? And it's kind of abrupt. After this sense of amazement, and this beauty of understanding and, and all the other things that are part of this. Then it goes, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. 
Now, now this is just kind of crazy. You're going from this real intimate conversation with God. And then it says, if you just would kill these guys, if you would just wipe out all the bad guys, you would just eliminate all these evil people. Notice they're not even ones that are offending David. These are ones who speak against God. One writer said that a faithful servant hath the same interests, the same friends, the same enemies with his master, whose cause and honor he is upon all occasions in duty bound to support and to maintain. In ancient times, when a vassal would commit themselves to a king, or uh, another king would commit themselves to an overlord king, then there would be a statement made that we find in ancient writings, with my friend, you shall be my friend says the one who is taking the allegiance in. With my friend, you shall be my friend. With my enemy, you shall be enemy. With my friend, you shall be friend. With my enemy, you shall be enemy. What David was referencing here was a recognition that his loyalty to God was total. That whoever was going to be a friend of God, David would be a friend to. Whoever was an enemy of God would also find David lining up as an enemy as well. The loyalty that he's expressing here is so profound. It goes so much against the spirit, not just of the day, but the spirit of our day today, against the idea that we can love God without hating evil. It's entirely possible, and this sounds bizarre coming from a place of grace and, and the churches were saying that it's possible for someone to be too loving in such a way that it corrupts the claimed love for God that we make allegiances and allowances for things that we should never make allegiances or allowances for. This has been a very confusing point for the church in recent times. But David's loyalty to God was total. A good man, one writer says, a good man hates as God himself doth. He hates not the persons of men, listen to that, not the persons of men, but their sins. Not what God made them, but what they have made themselves. We are neither to hate the men on account of the vices they practice, nor to love the vices for the sake of the men who practice them. His loyalty to God was total and complete. So it's not a bizarre turn at all. It's actually in many ways a response to the relationship that God has spelled out in this whole passage of how well he knows um, uh, David and how much he loves for him and cares for him and David's amazement and, and realization that this is a God to be loyal to, this is a God to, to embrace, this is a God who he will with his dying breath uphold his honor. He comes back to what he does at the beginning in a way as he ends this. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way. Another translation on this says, um, uh, it calls it wicked way. Another one says way of grief. If there's a way of grief or a wicked way or offensive way, we may be in a way that causes God grief, even though it is not what, what men would necessarily term wickedness. We may be still in a way that causes him grief. And so he's saying, search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my thoughts. See if there's any offensive, wicked, or anything that's going to bring grief to you. 
and then lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, he trans, uh, uh, sets this a, a apart from the, the way of grief, this offensive way, this wicked way, this way that leads to perishing and a death and the ending of life. He translates uh, that against um, the way everlasting, the way of eternity, the way of, of life. And so he says, see if there's anything that's going to end me, anything that's going to end our relationship, anything that's going to terminate our fellowship and remove that from me and instead lead me in the way of everlasting life, of eternity, of, of ongoing eternal relationship and intimacy with you. These last two lines, search me, O oh God, know my heart. This is a dangerous prayer for you to utter, to invite God to know us that intimately. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive, wicked, anything that brings you to grief, anything that's going to end me and terminate things. And lead me instead, God, after that review, in the way of eternity, in the way of those things that will last, those things that are going to have depth, those things that are going to have meaning. As I begin to draw this to a conclusion, I want to come back to what we had near the beginning. This opening segment. You've searched me, Lord, and you know me. There is a uh, thing I want to reference from a writer named Sky Jathani. Sky Jathani is a young church leader and writer and editor and um, even for his youthfulness, though, he's explaining at one point why he doesn't Twitter. And he said this, he's quoting from a film first. He says, there's this one film I saw. And in there, a person said, we need a witness to our lives. There are a billion people on the planet. I mean, what does any one life really mean? The character says, but in a marriage, you're promising to care about everything. The good things, the bad things, the terrible things, the mundane things, all of it, all the time, every day. You're saying, quote, your life will not go unnoticed because I will notice it. Your life will not go unwitnessed because I will be your witness. And then Jathani goes on to write, we all want our lives to matter. We believe they only matter if they are noticed by someone. He says, I wonder if this desire for a witness isn't what fuels a lot of blogs, Facebook, and especially Twitter. And I think that is so true. We want someone, anyone to take notice, to care about us. To me, this is blazingly obvious. To watch us and by their attention communicate, you matter. Your life counts. If, he says, this is one of the hidden motivations behind Twittering, and I think it is, he says, and I agree with him strongly. He says, we're really talking about a spiritual hunger. One that I don't believe can be satisfied online. He says, perhaps the most significant reason I don't Twitter is because I already have a witness for my life. And then he quotes the 139 Psalm. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a tongue is, uh, a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You know me. I believe in God's economy. There's not a single thought, feeling, or moment that is lost. 
There's nothing that is seen, unseen or unrecorded. God is indeed with me and with you, witnessing every thought and reflection. Jathani writes, my ideas are not lost and my life really does matter. Not because someone read it, heard it, saw it, or tweeted it, but because God is my witness. We are stuck in a social media reality and, and there's great helps with that as a tool, but not as a thing that, that determines my existence or defines me or rules me with who is liking or tweeting or, or affirming one way or the other. If that is your reality, you are lost. But David instead, instead knows a God that is not indifferent to him and is not hostile. In the night times and in the darkness of his life, he sings a song because he knows that his father sees him even in the darkness. In one film, one of the key phrases to imply intimacy and understanding and relationship and validity was the phrase, I see you. And with that, the person realized that when the other said, I see you, that they were known, accepted, loved, and even cherished. In my mind's eye, I see you. But our God knows you. How many thoughts he has upon you in the day as as many as there are grains of sand. He's put a wall of protection around you so nothing could penetrate it. No matter what happens, he's faster than whatever it occurs. And despite his knowledge of you and his knowledge of me, the intimacy and the depth of this, he still loves us and cares for us and provides no matter where we are. This morning hour, I want you to know the reality of this scripture. I want to know, have you know that the darkness you're in is light to him, that he hears your songs in the night. And if we realize that this is who God is, this is his character, this is his nature, then like David, perhaps we can step back and just say, God, you are amazing. That you would have this kind of concern and care. You, that I have nothing but worship, nothing but praise, nothing but gratitude, nothing but an openness and a welcomeness to know that you're watching me, to know that I'm safe, in your eyes. Father, I pray that this morning people would sense not just your, your gaze upon them, but your hand of grace that just physically, even they just feel that hand of grace upon them right now. And then in the midst of realizing how deeply they are loved and known and understood that you are their witness, that you see them, that Lord, they would feel the freedom in that of awe praise you and worship you even this morning. In Jesus' name.
songs in the night. Oftentimes they're, they're ones of lament or ones of sorrow, but they can also be one of triumph and victory and encouragement. They're mostly songs in the waiting. And that's what we're going to explore over the next couple of weeks. After we finish here in a minute's time, um, there'll be the lines open available for one-on-one prayer, which is our custom after a service. And that'll be available through Zoom. And there'll be a thing that'll clue you in on that. In the meantime, just know wherever you're at that you're seen, that you're known, that you're loved, and that you're valued. Whether it's Diana and Darren or the Burmeisters, Ajit, Divya, Frasers, Blairs, Cindy Fontana, or whether you're Raul lounging there in your uh, shirt and jeans, or Tim with the little Nike logo. And Colin, I really did like the slick back hair. We are all seen. We all have a purpose and a destiny. And we are all loved deeply and our lives are being witnessed by our creator. And at one point in time, the night will end and we'll be gathered together again. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your love and for the fellowship of believers, Lord guide us, Lord. Let us be aware and let us really embrace that you as our witness is sufficient for us. That you as our witness is sufficient. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.